Hi everyone, this is Corina. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends, in today's episode we are talking to Rasmus Stomsen, partner and design director at Is It A Bird? and speaker at the Smart City Stream um, of the Anthropology and Technology Conference happening on the 9th and 12th of October 2020. We talked to Rasmus about his mission of bridging the gap between technology builders and the problem spaces technology can play a role in solving. This process, believes Rasmus, entails curiosity, creativity and multidisciplinarity. But how to help see the real problems that are worth solving and how can insightful design create technology that adds social value and does not completely remove friction? Our reality is full of contradictions and a good design leaves space for friction in order to support truly human experiences. Rasmus brings in unexpected concepts of masculine and feminine energies to explain the processes in which his work evolves. Lastly, we ask him to give us a sneak preview of his talk at the conference on Smart Cities. We hope you enjoy it. Hi friends, we are here today with Rasmus Thompson, director at Is It A Bird, a strategy consulting company based in um, Denmark but operating all over the world and one of the speakers at the Anthropology and Technology Conference happening in October um, online. Hi, Rasmus. Hi, how are you? Good, uh, surviving in the heat of Amsterdam. <laughs> it's the same thing here in Copenhagen. So, yeah, yeah. Okay, so, but now um, I think um, I would like to really dive into this and ask you to tell me and our listeners a little bit about yourself um, and what, what your path has been so far with, um, with the job that you do. What led you to where you are right now? Yeah, uh, I mean, going forward, I didn't see any uh, red thread at all. It was just uh, jumping from um, uh, one exciting thing to the ne- to the next. But seeing it in hindsight, I can definitely see a, a, a clear path. Uh, so I've uh, basically been working with innovation all my career uh, and, and very much uh, through a design thinking lens. So 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 that has been like. The, the overall theme has been well, a really deep interest for what is happening in the process of innovation and got very early on a really good feeling of uh, what uh, good insights uh, in user behavior means to the process. Uh, I think it's like uh, so key that you have a, a good starting point uh, so you know what could be possible value for, for, for the end users or for the customers in the end. Hmm. So I have been working with this in a lot of different uh, ways during my career. Uh, I studied at university, I studied social science, but I then shifted. So I did my bachelor's in social science and then shifted to digital design. So that's also like both the deep um, theoretical and methodology of, of, of social science and then mixing that up with, uh, with digital design and this, yeah. And, and that, that really made sense for me. And then my jobs afterwards had been working both at agency side, 
but I worked for, I think, six years at the Danish Broadcasting Corporation, mm -hmm. working as an innovation consultant internally, helping uh, the different uh, departments uh, develop new formats for TV and radio. Hmm. So that whole thing about working, I, I think I've, I've been involved in over a hundred uh, development processes of, of new TV and, 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 and radio uh, shows. So that gave a really good foundation of what is happening in the creative space uh, and what is the process of making a group work and making something that uh, really needs to hit an audience. Hmm. After uh, six years there, I then jumped uh, ship and uh, started uh, Is It A Bird uh, with my partner, Dean. Yeah, I, I, I might add that uh, during my last years at the Danish Broadcasting Corporation, I was uh, very fortunate to uh, get a, like a, what's it called, a executive uh, education course. Uh, and I uh, got to attend the uh, design thinking boot camp at uh, Stanford University at the D school there, which was an amazing experience. And I learned so much and it really resonated with, with who I am and my, uh, my beliefs. But I also came home and had this feeling that the, focusing only on design thinking, there was something missing. And that was this very thorough in-depth insights into human behavior, which is for me a good starting point. I really tried to implement that in the Danish Broadcasting Corporation, but after uh, meetings with the CEO and really trying to, to promote this idea of, uh, of uh, putting two departments together, the, uh, the, the media research department and then the development department, and that, that didn't succeed. So this is uh, what we do. I did it myself. Uh, so we combine those two, the deep insights and the, the more iterative, creative design thinking principles. Hmm. So that was a long story. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah, I have uh, two questions, uh, a short one and maybe a little bit of a long one. So I'm going to start with a short one. Um, what's the history behind the name of the agency? Ah. <laughs> Yeah, that's a, that, it's a really good name because everybody asks that and then we start yeah. talking, but yeah. it actually means something. Uh, it, it refers, of course, to the base, uh, or to the classic Superman story. There's always in, in, in the old stories about Superman, there's a scene where there's someone standing on the sidewalk and they look uh, at the sky and then something is flying up there. And then they say, is it a bird? Is it a plane? No, it's, it's Superman. <laughs> okay. We thought it's a really good uh, metaphor for um, a, a, a very uh, basic paradox in all innovation projects, namely that we cannot talk about the things that we don't know. So we only have a language for what is known. Hmm. And in an innovation pro project, if it's a radical innovation project, at least, we need to find out this new thing. And it's only through a certain uh, process, uh, mind process and analysis, namely, is it a bird? Is it a plane? No, it's something else. And then we find out what that new thing is. And then we have a language for it all of mm. a sudden. And, and, and then it's, I mean, a success in some ways. So it is this thing that we need to remember that our reality is based on our language, uh, basically. 
I, I love your answer because it actually at the same time connects to my second question, but I just wanted to share something first. Um, I was invited some, some um, I think a year ago to speak to a group of designers about the tensions between social scientists and how they look at research and how designers design. <laughs> And, and, and particularly to speak to what is that tension, to define it, to make it visible. Um, and I, I, I took a while to think about it, but what, what, what basically I spoke to is the process of death and rebirth. And I said that for me as an anthropologist, all, uh, working with designers, like, like designers are very focused on the process of, of course, design, or the process of transforming something or discovering something new uh, about something. And, and in order for something new to emerge, something else needs to die. And they go, uh, they don't, and anthropologists, they really sit with what is there. They really sit with what exactly is in that system or in that world and try to des describe it, to understand it. So it's almost like, uh, it's, it's almost a paradox of, of conflict between the two because anthropologists want to sit with what is and, and define it and explore it and by that actually willing in it new life. Um, whereas in my work with designers, they went very fast into what is missing, what are the gaps, what are the problems, like almost trying to kill it in order to um, create space for the new. And in the intersection between the two, I found a lot of interesting spaces of creation because then it takes you to creation with purpose. It's not creation for creation's sake, but you, you basically, you have to know something very well uh, in order to, to kill it and change it or to kill some of it and change it. So I'm, I'm, I'm making a kind of a poor, <laughs> um, a poor explanation of that kind of process that I explained um, a year back. I actually, actually, I wanted to ask you the same question. What, what do you think is, is kind of like the tension between these two disciplines what, what made it that it was difficult to put them together in your old job and what makes it so that you manage in the current one? Uh, it's a very interesting uh, question that you're posing and thank you for that. I mean, it's it's something that I've been thinking a lot about actually, but I still haven't really cracked it. So bear over if it doesn't make uh, sense all, all, the, all the way through. But as I see it, uh, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the double diamond framework. Um, so yes. you have in the first diamond, you are, uh, 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 you're looking at the problem. Uh, so finding out what is the problem that we, we need to uh, solve. And the second diamond, we solve the right problem. Uh, so it's, uh, how, how is it? It's sol solving the right problem and solving the problem right. So <laughs> yeah. that's two different uh, uh, diamonds. And I think that uh, the first diamond, of course, is very uh, anthropological, and the mm -hmm. second diamond is very much design. And that's uh, a nice way. Uh, and, and of course, that's very, very uh, like black and white, uh, the way I'm telling it here, because it's not like that in, in, in real life there. The things are mixed much more. And also at, at our company, we don't say, well, it's the, uh, the anthropologist that does this part and the designers that does this part. We mix the teams so that we get a really good dynamic in that way. But if we look at it a little black and white, then you could say that uh, the first part is very much about exploration. It's about opening up. It's about understanding what is there. And um, it is trying, I mean, the world, if we look at the world, it will always be contradictory, full of paradoxes, full of things that doesn't fit together. Uh, and 
when you talk to people, it's like, how can this be true when you say this and then you say this at the next time? And that's also true, but it's totally con contradictory. I mean, we, we see this all the time and people saying there's one thing and doing another thing. It's a process where it's, it, you have to be very open and you need to get behind what is there. So you could say it's about understanding the, the, the context. It's about understanding where your final solution needs to live in at some point. So in that way, I compare it very much with a female energy. So it's, it's very much uh, like it's about containing. Uh, it's about uh, to, to, to really understand this. And then the second part is the, uh, or the second diamond is it's it, the design thing. That's very much a, a much more like goal focused or goal oriented uh, kind of a discipline where yes, you need to kill stuff. And you need to have uh, take decisions. You need to sharpen your arguments. You need to uh, be this very focused because what you're doing needs to penetrate something in the end. It needs to penetrate the market. So I know that this could this sounds maybe a little hippie like, but it is in my belief two kinds of like energies. Mm -hmm. And I'm not talking about females or or and men. I'm talking about the energies behind it. So it's a feminine energy and the masculine mm. energy, those two parts. We need it so desperately. And mm. the problem is that most of those organizations that we work with, they have a very male-dominated uh, culture. So uh, all development is seen as we need to sharpen our, our weapons and we need to penetrate the market. And that's, I think, an, a totally wrong place to start. We need to start in that uh, female energy that is about which is much more fruitful. Hmm. I, I don't know if this makes sense at all. I'd like to hear your thoughts on it. It does, it does remind you of the cycles of birth and rebirth, like the cycles of creation and destruction that are in continuity of one another, you know, like the in the the, the symbolism in 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 China. Uh, I hope I'm not butchering it for those of our listeners that that know it much better than me. But like the 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 snake that eats its own tail. You know, and this kind of yin and yang, this old symbolism that talks about basically how how energy works, right? How you need you need death in order for creation to emerge, and you need to create in order to destroy. So it's it's kind of like a, a loop. And I find it very interesting. Like um, when I and again, apologize for those of our listeners if I'm butchering it. And when I when I read about um, Chinese spirituality and, and, and it, it associates this kind of like fecundity that is associated with the gender of a female with the act of creation, you know, like the womb and the energy that, that sits and it's connected to creation. And then you have the, the male energy that is more associated with death and, and focus and sharp and, and not. So, uh, that, that's what it takes me to, but, but what I find very interesting is the inherent interdependence between the two, right? Because one doesn't exist without the other, and one makes the other uh, powerful and relevant. So uh, I, I wonder, with within your own practice, because you, I would imagine, embody in yourself both sides, right? The the you need the light of the day to contrast the beauty of the night sky, and you need the night to contrast the day. I, I wonder where have you found that spaces of interdependence uh, inside yourself with with these concepts. I think that it's uh, very clear that, I mean, if we're talking about female and masculine energy, I'm, I have a masculine energy myself, but I also 
uh, have a lot of feminine sides. And just being able to say that is very uh, vulnerable to a lot of uh, men mm. saying, well, I contain a lot of feminine sides. Uh, I don't know why it is so so vulnerable and and frowned upon, but that that's how it is. I think it starts there, saying, "Well, we contain both. Of course, I'm yeah. I, I'm a man, and I have more masculine sides in in some some instances. But yes, I can also uh, I can also play in in other fields. So that's I think where it starts. And the interesting thing is that my partner is a female, and she she actually what I really also admire her for is that she has a lot of masculine sides. She's in, in many ways, she's also the CEO of this company. And she, that is, uh, I mean, just being being able to say that, I think, is, is, is interesting. Yeah. How do you see this dynamic playing out with projects and with multidisciplinary teams? So I'm, I'm really curious on how in the practice of this mixed teams, because you've mentioned earlier that you, in your agency, you do have both, right? The the explorative social science side and also the direction part of the um, of, of the designer mind. How do you see it enacted in, in projects? How do you see these two somehow opposite elements coming together and producing um, great insights? What makes it happen that it's so? I think that it comes together in the way that in the first uh, explorative phase, uh, it's very much about, uh, or it's different ways of navigating uh, through a project. So in the first phase, it's very much about navigating the chaos by whole being open. You need to be open enough for it, for a long time in order for for these insights actually to emerge. Uh, and of course, it's a it, of course it's a process. We have like uh, like uh, very clear processes for everything, but it's still this thing that we need to try to. To, to get the complexity mm. in and mm. and and holding it, the complexity in the room without stressing. Then these new things will emerge, where as when you get to the more design uh, part or the, the ideation part, then it's very much uh, about prioritization. It's about finding what we what we think has uh, potential here. It is this translating it into something that is uh, that has a, a more clear direction whereas in the explorative side it doesn't really have a direction yet yeah yeah i i'm wondering how this sense making process lands in the team itself because i'm fully with you of yeah. of, of 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 how the how how the knowledge gets produced and created but how how does it work with a team so just to be maybe more direct in my question yes. i've had speakers on the podcast that said i do not believe in multidisciplinarity i believe in transdisciplinarity so that within the individual themselves they are um, aware of that cycle so you've got a, like you now or the uh, half designer half anthropologist within themselves are able to 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 be a container and a director uh, of energy into inside. And we've had speakers that said, no, actually, you do need multidisciplinarity. But in the way you you, you create the, the dynamics of the relationship of the team, like building trust, building openness with each other, you uh, they kind of end up in, in this kind of dance where uh, this uh, at this moment, the process needs this knowledge and I trust you to hold space. And then, then I step back and you take forward. So there's a kind of a interplay of uh, emotion and trust between the team that that enables them to sit with each other's knowledge without um, diminishing it. 
I, I wonder where do you sit on that kind of um, approach? A little bit of, of everything, I think. I uh, really want to have a, a multidisciplinary team, uh, and not just multidisciplinary. I mean, we want a diverse team. Mm-hmm. We want as many different people as possible. Uh, and that is both people from different cultural backgrounds and, and, and countries and languages and, and all of that that is, I think, super important in order to, to, to get as many uh, perspectives on things as possible. But I can also see that a lot of really good people we have here, they are very broad also in their, mm-hmm. in their profiles. So they're not just analytical or anthropological or, I mean, that's, I I see a a big value in people trying to to bridge a bigger gap or I don't know how to really explain it. And that's also been a a very clear strategy from our our side, from the management Mm. side has been, well, we need, even though you come in as as an anthropologist, you need to, within a very short time, you need to uh, do a lot of other things. So I, I think it's very important that everybody knows as much as possible about yeah. the whole process and mm-hmm. has different perspectives and stuff. That's what makes, I mean, this, this all comes down to empathy. Uh, it's, it's about how can we empathize both with the companies that we work with and with the pe- people that we, that we look at. And it's that's super hard to do, uh, I think. But the the good anthropologist or the good designer are actually uh, able to do that. I think. Yeah, you you talked at the beginning of our um, conversation about language and 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 the power of, of of kind of creating language, putting language onto something. I I wonder uh, if uh, within your process of building up and setting up the agency, you've created language for yourselves in kind of that can help you navigate these realities. And and if so, what type of language that you've uh, created or approached has helped um, in uh, bridging these two worlds? Uh, We've been very focused uh, on creating lots of processes for what we do because it can feel, I mean, when you're navigating the chaos, you need to have something (laughs) to hold on to. You cannot just like be in chaos. You need to... I mean, uh, that was one of the, my first learnings in, in one of my first jobs, uh, doing a lot of facilitating. And, and one of my mentors there said uh, this thing about that you need to put role for the facilitator is to keep the group in this open space for a long time. But it's very mm-hmm. uh, uh, provoking for a lot of people. I mean, it, it actually provokes uh, stress and anxiety for for a lot of people to be in this open space where we haven't taken any decisions yet and we're trying to get as many uh, possibilities or per- perspectives on things. So it's like, so how can you, how can you as a facilitator actually manage that? And one thing that you can do is you can, you can say, well, I, I handle time mm-hmm. as a facilitator. Just taking that bit of complexity out of the process helps. Yeah. And then you can look at all of these other things saying, how can I reduce the complexity that we don't need in order to handle the complexity that we actually really want in the process? It has been a dogma for us to try to make these processes. So we actually have, we made a, we call it uh, the, the, is it a bird playbook that uh, very clearly shows how we do different things in different stages. Uh, and. Mm-hmm. 
That helps both uh, in onboarding new uh, employees, of course, but it actually helps also in staying in this in these processes, which is can be super stressful for a longer time. Yeah, I love it. It reminds me um, this weekend I went to a city nearby Amsterdam uh, in a museum that actually tries to recreate what it's like to be blind in the world. So the whole museum, the whole experience, you're guided by a blind uh, person uh, through a, a pitch black uh, environment uh, and then go get to experience what it's like. But in that process of navigation uh, through this black universe, you get uh, a stick, a walking stick and a railing to your left. And then the voice of the guide that kind of makes that uh, navigation possible. So I had that in my mind as you were talking with your tooling, you know, like, it must be actually quite difficult to figure out uh, when to stop. So right. I wanted to ask you that. When, when do you stop with this kind of playbook so that it doesn't become, let's say, a dogma or too rigid? How do you know when to stop? I, I think by now we've reached a, a level that uh, everybody can live with. Uh, I don't think we, uh, we've been working pretty much uh, or a long time on it, but I also think that we kind of agree across the team that uh, for now we don't have to, uh, to, to work on it anymore. Uh, I mean, we all, all the time then something new arises. I mean, we do projects that has, uh, has uh, where we need to, to, to develop some new methods and, and stuff like that. And, and that, of course, needs to go into the, uh, into the yeah. table. Uh, but I think that we've kind of reached a, a, a level, uh, also putting some, some pretty strict uh, frames around how we describe it. So it is, it's a slideshow. And each method, so to say, is max one slide. So that also like put some some limits on yeah. how much we can do because it's. I mean, you can go on forever, mm. but that's the same thing in in our projects. I mean, yeah. uh, what we do. I mean, there's no limit to, uh, to 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 how much work you can do when you're trying to uh, understand uh, people in in a certain context. Mm. Uh, and uh, there it's so important that we have these limits so it's time is a really important one uh, we need to have really strict times mm. uh, uh, or deadlines for, for, for because we can go on and that's I mean that's for every phase in the process yeah, I love that. Um, Rasmus, I'd like to dive deeper into your methodologies, but uh, I'm also quite aware that you will be one of the speakers at the Anthropology and Technology Conference. So um, I wanted to kind of switch our conversation into that direction and first start by asking you why the Anthropology and Technology Conference? Like, what, what was your motivation behind? Um, well, I'm, I'm very interested in the field of technology and anthropology. I think... Um, so that's 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 the answer basically but uh, if i have to elaborate a little bit more about it then uh, i think that uh, innovation uh, or successful innovation uh, has at least one characteristic and that is that technology and uh, it, it, you, 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 that you have really good technology and that it's applied in a way that really fits human uh, behavior or needs or the, 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 the context. The thing is, and that's my motivation is, I think 
and that's also what I see with a lot of our client organization is that you start very often, you start with technology. Hmm. You have an R&D department uh, or you have uh, uh, some technology that where it's like some engineers that think this is super cool. And the reason why they are working with it is basically just because it's super cool. And then the human application is kind of secondary. Hmm. And I think it's so wrong. Uh, I, I, I don't say that, uh, I'm, I'm not saying that uh, we shouldn't uh, research in, 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 in technology, not at all. We need to always remember that value, what is value? Value is, a, is such a strange concept. I mean, value is, you, you can't like hold on to value. Value is, what is that? It's like money. Money is also a strange concept. I mean, money is, it doesn't have any value before it's spent. So as long as it's, it's in my pocket, it doesn't hold any value. It's like a, but as soon as I can exchange money to something that I truly need, then it creates value. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing when, when you talk to, or when, when, when you go out to, to companies, then all of these people that are working there, they're patting each other on the back and saying, wow, I was super valuable today. And it's like, no, I mean, you did probably did really good job, but the value only arises when what you do is perceived valuable by the ones that buy your product. Mm -hmm. So that is where value actually arises. It's only a perception by the people uh, that, that you are creating the value for. Yeah. And I think people really um, forget that in their everyday life. Why so, do you think they forget it? Uh, particularly uh, technologists. Uh, well, it's because uh, engineers, they are engineers not because they like people. They're engineers because they like technology. <laughs> they, I, I mean, I've been working with a lot of engineers and I really like working with engineers. But they have a very strong tendency to not look too much at the at the overall problem mm. so they see a problem which is they see i can solve this in a technological way and it's most the problem is mostly a, a tech problem already mm. i really love that in some ways because it they're so they're so short from seeing something to action i mean yeah. engineers they like action it's like okay let's let's code something <laughs> let's uh let's yeah. let's let's get the toolbox out and 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 make stuff mm. but what we need is that first diamond that i was talking about is saying we need to step back we need to allow ourselves saying and reframe the problem saying is this the right problem who is this a problem for yeah uh, uh, why is it a problem? Yeah. And then you need to dare to go that step back and then find out, okay, are we on the right track? Are we solving the right problem? Mm. Is this really what is important uh, that we use our energy on? And then we, we will solve it. So you need to reframe that problem. And I think that in, in that tech uh, anthro, uh, I think that's, I mean, one of the biggest uh, interesting things or issues is this thing about you have on one side people who are really interested in technology and just want to make a product and then you have on the other side people who are interested in understanding the problem mm. and we need to bridge that and that's 
that's my big mission, I think. Yeah, yeah. And, and I love it the way for me, kind of like it circles back with what we were discussing at the beginning as the source of that tension, which is um, the creative force and the container force. Mm-hmm. And how, how um, because I can also understand as a technologist, every time I talk to um, uh, people that are problem solvers, they for them, the problem is a challenge that they want resolved. It's almost like, you know, it's, it's an intellectual challenge and exercise to see something and to want to make sense of it, no mat- because it, it doesn't matter if it's a problem for somebody else, it's a problem for you that you want it solved. Just this intellectual exercise of making sense of a line of code that nobody has made sense before, and I can connect with that because I also was a was a was a champion in in mathematics in school, and and I I used to like to just uh, to just uh, it's like a Rubik cube, you know, like you just want to crack it, uh, and I think there's there's power in that energy, but if you don't couple it with an energy that sits with somebody's needs then it can also go very disruptive and very separated, right? And um, yeah, I love it how, how for me it kind of put, uh, loops back into what you're saying that you need the container energy or the female energy of how you describe it. And you need that other sharp focus, problem solving energy to come together. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's really nice. It reminds me of all these documentaries that talk about like these mad scientists, you know, like um, uh, mathematicians or Marie Curie and the way she discovered plutonium and, and how it's being used right now, plutonium. But I think it, it's very important to be able to couple that scientific exploration fo- focus with the moral and ethics and the 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 sitting with the big world problems that creates also empathy but focus you know because you could solve complex problems but are they the right problems the ethical problems the moral problems you know so Uh, and you're touching upon something that i think is uh, something that we haven't solved yet uh, is so we have on on one side we have the problem solving and on the other side uh, the uh, exploring the human needs uh, but uh, I mean, what I I think we all are being more and more uh, aware of is that if we're just solving human needs, we're not solving the problems for the for the for the for the planet. Yeah. Uh, and I think that going into this field, I was like very focused on saying, well, it's a good mission to really understand human needs and then create mm. solutions that, that, that cater to, uh, to, to the human needs. But we see more and more that we need to uh, make uh, solutions that fit the planet more than just humans. <laughs> and it's not the same. Um, so um, I wanted to ask you, Rasmus, what are you planning to talk to at the conference? Well, I am going to talk about this paradox of how to know that you're solving the right problem. Uh, and I'm, I'm talking in the stream uh, of smart cities. Mm. And I think when you uh, talk about smart cities, uh, you always get these pictures of these sci-fi cities. I mean, cities that are, uh, I don't think, very human. Uh, and I'm wondering if also by calling it smart cities and the whole paradigm that is behind that, we kind of lose what the problem is that we need to solve. And the problem is that we need to make better living conditions for humans. And then technology 
should be a tool for us to reach that goal. Mm. And a lot of these scenarios that I see, I don't think they're very appealing. I mean, yes, I can see it from a technological point of view that this could be smart or this could be, I mean, all of these things, but does it truly make my life better? Give me, and, and, and then I, it's important to remember what is, what is, I mean, what is the human, what makes us happy? Mm. What is it uh, that we need to support? And I saw, uh, and I think I'm also going to show that, uh, I saw, I mean, one, one uh, thing that is talked about a lot now is uh, the Elon Musk, the boring uh, company. And he, the vision is like to solve all the problems of too many cars in the cities. You want to make uh, tunnels under the big cities, and then you have these systems so cars can go in these tunnels really fast from A to B. And the pictures of this, I mean, yeah, it, it sounds incredible. And that's how I have it with all Elon Musk's projects. It's like, wow, it's amazing. And this guy is a genius. But I think it's, it's important to ask, does this solve the right problems when you're using that much money on projects uh, or making tunnels or under big cities? Uh, is this actually solving the, right, the, the problems? Is this making normal people live better lives? And I mean, I'm from, you're sitting in Holland, I'm in, I'm in Copenhagen, both places where bicycles are taking up more and more space of cars. And it's like, that's, I mean, I, I look out just outside the window now and see uh, families riding bikes in the sunshine. I mean, that's what we need to invest in. That's what is solving the problems. That is giving uh, 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 life quality and meaning to people, not sitting in tunnels and fast cars. Mm. I, I, that's 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 that would be my like a little provoking starting point saying we need to really think of technology as something that is serving humans and not the other way and that's a little bit what i feel with elon musk is that some of his projects i mean i'm also a big fan of him but i think also he's losing sight sometimes because of love of technology yeah yeah so I wonder for those of our listeners that are technologists that would, you know, are listening to us and are just say, well, but, but actually the tunnel does solve a problem for a car. So for me, a car is a better means of transportation. If you look at mega cities, like big cities than than bikes. So I, I and I do consider the user when I'm doing so. Um, now, what would you say? I mean, what I, I, type? Okay. let me give you an example. Yeah. Because, I mean, if you are uh, overweight, super overweight, and you want to solve the overweight problem, then you don't, I mean, you don't solve the overweight problem by adding extra holes in your belt. That's what I think this project is doing. It's, mm. it's, it, the problem is that we have too many cars. Yeah, it's a different it's, problem. <laughs> it's, it's not that we have mm. too little space for the cars. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, uh, of course, Elon Musk, he has a very, big interest in not saying that he wants to solve a problem that he knows is there is that there's not a room enough in the cities for cars. Yeah. So let's find another way to put more cars into the city. 
do it on the ground. The problem is, is not here. It's not a human problem. I'm a technologist. Help me. I uh, help me figure out how do I know when I'm solving the right problem, the human problem. How do I know that I've gotten a human problem that it's, uh, um, how do you say, uh, the right one to solve? You do that when uh, you uh, can, uh, uh, of course, you need to test on people. You need to find out uh, how, does, how does this test. Do people actually see that this is valuable to me? Mm. Uh, but I also think that when you have a solution like that, you can truly like feel inside of you that yes, I would feel uh, like I would have this feeling in this mm -hmm. if I was in this situation. Mm -hmm. So it's, I mean, that's also when when the inside is good, is you can actually feel it. You, yeah, you, it ha you have a bodily reaction on it. It's like yes, that's how it is. Uh, yeah, and then translating that into a solution where it kind of gives that same feeling. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not against technology, not at all. I see so many cool technological solutions, but we just need to remember this thing about what is the problem that we're solving. We did a project uh, for a big company. They did a, a smart home solution. Now I know I'm talking about smart, smart homes and it's not smart cities, but I, it's, they, they are, they're connected. Yeah. Uh, so they made the solution. And it is a solution where you can, through this smart technology, uh, control all of the outside of your house. I know it's a little uh, abstract, but it's 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 like the the thing is that they made a really cool product uh, or product from a technological point. But the problem was that it didn't really uh, f uh, do good in the market. And we were then hired to find out what is the problem here. Uh, and, and, and that is, I mean, from the company side, basically admitting we didn't get the problem right from the beginning. So we took that step back and found out that there were so many things in emotional things. I mean, it did the job from a, a, a functional point but it didn't do it on a, on an emotional uh, uh, point. So, I mean, they didn't see that, uh, that uh, leaving control over your outer shell of your house to something that is a little bit abstract, some technology, that was actually... Lack uh, of control. They really <laughs> didn't trust it. Uh, and uh, we saw people who would install this system, and they uh, uh, even the, even though they had the system, they every night went around locking the cars, checking if windows was closed, and all of that. And they didn't trust it. So how can you like back it off and then say, well, the problem if we do this, it's not just a functional thing. It's it's how can we create that emo emotional trust? Uh, how can we create the system so that it 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 has more human value, maybe, or uh, mm. more more it's it's it, it has more human traits? Uh, I think that uh, I mean it's many years ago. I went to uh, to visit the company Rethink Robotics in Boston, and they did this uh, collaborative robot, which is called Baxter. And what it's a robot that works next to uh, next to people, so it's it. It's a yeah, it's a collaborative robot. So, how do you create something that is a robot, but it needs to work with humans? They did one thing that I think was, I mean, so basic. They put eyes on mm -hmm. the, on the robot. 
I mean, it didn't, of course, it didn't look through those eyes, but we as humans, we connect to eyes and just putting eyes on the robot made the whole thing much easier to work with. <laughs> that is so cool. I mean, that's, the question was, when do we know it's a, it's a good solution? It is when it's not just a functional solution. It's when it actually uh, uh, ticks different boxes, which is on a uh, on emotional uh, and I mean when it's really good then it's it's on this more meaningful it's because the solution brings meaning to me as a as a person we have we're working very much with that uh, or a tool which we call the meaning ladder so you have four steps on a ladder and on the lower ladder you have technology so that's the basic technology that's the chip that's the uh, 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 the algorithm, the yeah. whatever. The next level, you have uh, a, a product. So there you put the, the technology into some product. And on the third ladder, you have a solution. That's when the product solves something for you. So that's on a, this very emotional mm -hmm. uh, uh, or, uh, yeah, it, no, that's on a functional. Uh, and then on the top ladder, you have meaning. Mm -hmm. So if you take a hearing aid, for instance, then you have the basic technology, which is all the chips and all the uh, all the stuff that is inside it. The product is the hearing aid, and it has some kind of a design. The solution is it's making people uh, hear again, and that's a, that's a really I mean that's an amazing solution. But when you then talk to people who has uh, first experiences with a hearing aid. So they've been uh, uh, having problems with their hearing for a long time and then all of a sudden they take the step of buying a hearing aid. What do they say? They don't say, I get my hearing back. They say, now I get my social life back. Mm. Because not being able to hear totally removes you from social, uh, social, yeah, social stuff. All yeah. stuff actually. It's like you cannot participate in a dinner, uh, in a dinner party, but all of a sudden, this person can participate in the dinner party, and that's the value. Yeah. And that's yeah. what we need to remember is that that is where the value is exchanged. It's when people have that feeling, and that's what I I mean about you need to be able as a, as a designer also to feel that it's like wow. It's it's not just giving them the ability to hear. No, it is. I, I'm I'm actually putting meaning into their life again. Seth, that is a nice feeling as a designer. Yeah. No, you've done your your job well. And that's also in the smart uh, city space. What we need always to remember is we need to make solutions that makes life people more happy. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and if it doesn't do that, then maybe it's not worth doing it. Yeah. Oh, that's what I cannot wait for your presentation now. Um, I just wanted to ask you before we wrap this up, if there's any other final thoughts that you want to send out to those of our that are listening and considering to join the conference, uh, joining your stream, ending thoughts from your end? That was a, a tough question. Uh, no, I don't know. So. <laughs> come, right? Um, I think yeah. it's really inspiring uh, talking to you. Uh, uh, I think it's been uh, been 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 great to uh, to talk about these things, uh, and I'm looking very much forward to the conference. 
I, I, I do. And I, I really like the way you, you, you speak kind of like um, almost like a challenge of, of remembering how to be in the world. It made me think like you, you have to be able to be in the world in order to design for the world in some ways. Because if, you, if you're not fully aware of, of your space of, as a human being, then it's difficult to create empathy with these other layers of awareness that you're speaking to, you know? It's almost as if you yourself are... Are, are closing some some eyes inside yourself and just keeping one open, which is this creator one, but then it makes you blind to all of those things that would enable a great design, right? Yes. Yeah. I, I totally agree with you. And that's also, I mean, some of the, the secrets behind uh, being a creative person. Uh, I think that, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a, a different subject, but I actually think it's very connected is, I mean, we talk a lot in all businesses, uh, talk about creativity. Mm. And uh, I think that when you, a lot of places, people talk about creativity as it's an output. It's something that we, I mean, this is when I, produce an output that is creative, then I'm creative. But we forget that the most creative people, they don't just output. They have or have an, a creative output. They also have a very creative input in that sense that they have a different view on the world than you and I. Mm. Uh, they see stuff that we don't see or they see it in a different way. And that's why they also get a different output. So I think that this whole thing about, and that's coming back to the double diamond actually, is like, we need to remember that we first need to study the world or create this empathy or, or create these new lenses on what it means to be human and what it means to, to, to have a social life and what it means to be, uh, in the world uh, and then we translate that into a creative output mm. and and it's it's really not difficult but we kind of forget it in in the way that most companies or most people are in the world which is very much about effectiveness it's about having a clear path and goals and we have all of these things that we need to do every day and we need to uh, uh, have perfect uh, private lives and perfect uh, 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 professional lives and that just creates a stress that uh, I think that we kind of we sometimes forget to to study the world we forget to go to the art museum we forget to uh, to 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 visit those friends that uh, that you think is a little crazy or uh, i mean or you 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 limit yourself from things that that uh, can uh, can provoke you uh, i mean look at what what the the whole big focus on uh, on convenience and on usability or user experience. We need to create products that create the perfect user experience all the time in order to take away friction from our lives. But maybe we need the friction sometimes. I mean, we can, we can create a totally frictionless society through technology and good UX, but maybe we then become less creative yeah, yeah, you lose something in the process, right? It reminds me of Wally. -E. I don't know if you've seen the yeah, movie. Yeah. 
And when you get that, those humans that are living in the outer space, they're all like plugged into technology and blobs uh, that do not move, that they're just there to get, to receive, receive and receive pleasure. Yes. But exactly. not, not, but not have agency over the environment and, and not kind of like, and it's interesting, right? I was reading this book that talked about the appeal of horror movies. Mm-hmm. And why do people like those type of uh, contained experience uh, or like when you go through the thrill of a Disney world and you go through the, this kind of um, the th- thrill seeking that at the same time is controlled or why people get interested in like the hero journeys of others, not of their own. <laughs> but uh, I think I think there's something through that friction huh, in the hero journey where, where it also shows you that you you become somebody something else like you you create recreate and create yourself by going through moments of friction, right? Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. I think a really good example, I think the Wally example is a, is a brilliant example. I also think during Corona, we have so many uh, interesting examples of physical uh, user experiences that was really good design. So shopping experiences where there's been designers that has gone through all of the touch point and optimizing everything. So we had this amazing experience. And all of a sudden, you need to put a, a hand sanitizer a thing in the middle of it that is not designed and you uh, limit people from entering certain spaces and, and all of that that is really not designed. And I, 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 I have really, uh, I mean, it's, uh, I know that uh, Corona has been terrible in many ways, but that part of it, I actually enjoyed because mm-hmm. it made this, ah, the world is not designed all the time. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love it. Like that would be a talk in itself, right? Uh-huh. Talking about how, how friction makes better design. Exactly. <laughs> Creating for friction instead of against it. Well, I, I, I actually... It's it's a new idea for me, but I actually believe it. Uh, I, I think there's something in it that we, in order to make truly great experiences, we need to to leave room for some friction. Yeah. Well, that could be another talk, right? Um, Rasmus, it was a pleasure um, hosting you on the podcast today, yeah. and uh, I'm looking forward to hearing your talk at the conference. Uh, thank you very much. And uh, I'm looking forward to uh, hearing your podcast. Thank you and have a lovely day. You too. Bye. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.